This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the virgin birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Welcome back to the podcast. This is uh, the podcast that uh, we call This Is Not Church because if it was church, you'd have left by now. I'm here as always with my, uh, my esteemed older brother, John. Say what up, John. What up, John? What I like about you most is that you follow instructions. So I'm going to start changing this up just to make sure that if let's I do that, I yeah, say, let's do that. Yeah, for next time I'll do like we did when we were kids, we like, say, hey, say, uh, say, I'm an idiot, John. Hey, I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Stop hitting yourself. I still owe you for that one, by the way. But here we are. We have a, uh, we have a cool guest with us today. Uh, I'm going to read something uh, about her real quick. And then we're just going to jump, as we always do, head first into wherever. Uh, wherever the conversation takes us. So Heather Hamilton is here today. Let me see if I can read the words that I'm supposed to read. I'm going to turn this around the other way. Maybe that'll help me get them. All right, here we go. All right, so after leaving a mystical experience that up, uh, that upended her traditional evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton reluctantly found herself in, the, in, in this place. I'm so sorry. There's a part before that I should have read, John. Let me read the stuff in bold print. So here's how, here's how funny this is. I read the stuff in small print, but ignored the stuff I could read. Um, anyway, <laughs> the stuff in bold print. This is from the back of her book, by the way. It says, do you resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims? After leaving a mystical experience that upheld her traditional evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton reluctantly found herself in this place. Her seeking led to the most unexpected uh, insights. Returning to Eden, is a field guide for the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden reexamines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as a symbol as sim- as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the virgin, virgin birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a, a white knuckle grip on implausible beliefs but a relation into a deep inner knowing. You may be surprised to find yourself reinvigorated and enlightened by stories you thought were inside, uh, you knew inside and out. Returning to Eden has the potential to cultivate a renaissance of wonder and curiosity for anyone from the most seasoned Christians to the most committed atheists and everyone in between. I'm going to stop reading now. You're um, close. You're so close. close. I, I guarantee that. I was, I'm like, <laughs> let, me, let me just say this before we get started. Um, I actually can read. <laughs> Even at you know, like a like a high school level, <laughs> but uh, I'm 51 now, and my eyes have begun to fail, and I I guess my memory too, because I'm always misplacing my reading glasses. So 
Um, for a guy who had 2020 vision his entire life, it's a hard habit to get into. So, and that sounds like a first world problem, I know. But <laughs> welcome to the podcast, Heather. How are you? Thank you. I'm so good. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Thank you for coming and thank you for uh, for being so flexible. Um, you're a member of the choir family, so we give choir props to woohoo choir folks. Yes. Um, John and I are are as you already know, we're very connected with with choir, and we're we're uh, uh, we're super happy to be part of the family as well. But uh, let's talk about your. Um, just, your, your, just a little bit about your background. That, that the back of your book doesn't re- reveal a ton about um, yeah. your journey. And uh, offline, we were talking about how maybe four or five, four and a half years ago or so, you kind of had this abrupt um, awakening. So uh, yeah, talk us through that. Yeah. So like yeah, before we started, um, before we started recording, you were you were we were talking about some mutual authors and spiritual teachers that we both kind of follow and admire. And it sounded like you had been familiar with them for a long time. And I was like, yeah, I, I feel like I was like a newcomer, but basically long story short about, uh, four and a half years ago, it was like, it was just, you know, from the time I was a child till then, like all evangelicalism, um, just, you know, probably similar to y'all, like just really, that was the whole ecosystem, my whole universe all the relationships. My husband was like um, the music director at this very large mega church um, at the time. And um, yeah, so the long story short is, is we had just had like our third kid and I kind of spontaneously and very quickly, like um, had just some major revelations like about my life. And it was sort of like, you're talking about like not being able to see. It was like putting glasses on for the first time, but like, this existential thing um, where I just got a really clear and crisp picture of, you know, my life. And um, up until then, it maybe kind of seemed like this kind of scattered puzzle pieces that had not fit together. And all of a sudden it was like, bam, it all just came into focus very quickly. Um, And so this basically caused me to have like an abrupt, like nervous breakdown identity crisis, which like spiraled into like, what I was like quite literally held to me. Um, And I, that was part of like my deconstruction journey was realizing, oh, I'm in psychological, like I think that this is it. And so very quickly going like, oh, this is not a place of eternal conscious torment. This is like a psychological descent into the abyss, the abyss, excuse me, which I kind of quickly put together, you know, growing up evangelical, I had all these Bible, st- you know, you it's all the Bible stories, especially Southern Baptist, you know, like I'm going to Awana's, like, it was just, these were all my stories. So I already had like this symbolic language, I guess, in the form of Bible stories that started to sort of align with my journey. And so in this dark night of the soul or whatever you'd like to call it, I sort of recognized it as like the belly of the whale. And it was like, oh, I think that this is what this story is about. So kind of very quickly and abruptly, like literalism fell apart for me, but maybe in different than some other people that I've seen who go through the whole deconstruction process, I was deconstructing all the literalism but it was sort of simultaneously like taking on a new meaning. Like I just found uh, Christianity to be like 
my mother tongue, like just a language that I was using to like describe and articulate some of the experiences and the transformation that I was experiencing. And through that process, I felt very like free from just speaking this one language. So I was like exploring other traditions as well and kind of finding learning new languages to kind of describe the same thing. Like I would be speaking with people who, you know, came from like a Hindu background or something like that. And it's like, they'd be describing something. And I'm like, you're talking about the same thing that I'm talking about. We're just using different languages and metaphors to speak about it. Anyway, yeah, that was kind of the inspiration of this book was to kind of help people and and I really like wrote it for people in like that evangelical mindset, like a kind of methodical walking from like A to Z to like not feel like it's just like literalism or bust, you know, like Jonah literally got swallowed by a whale or nothing like, or this story is pointless. I'm like, I, I think that it has a deeper psychological meaning, which can actually be really like therapeutic and beneficial to you. And you already have this language, you know, yeah, for sure. So yeah, yeah there's, I, I remember having, um, so just to kind of give you an idea of uh, that, what you sensed about me was right. I have been doing this for a long time. So, um, I first became aware of Rob Bell when he was still a pastor of Mars Hill, uh, in, in Michigan, not to be confused with the other shitty Mars Hill uh, <laughs> that, that gave us Mark Driscoll. That, that tweaked me hard that he called anyway. Um, but anyway, so I became aware of Rob Bell because uh, I started listening to his podcast from his church. They were just his church sermons, you know? And I'm like, this is a guy I can listen to. Like, this is a guy that makes sense to me. And currently I was serving in a church who, the, the pastor of which I could not listen to. I mean, I just was like, I was the music minister and I would go play my, my, my four songs and then I would go, you know, because I couldn't listen to the dude. But all of that was to say that I heard Rob Bell um, do a three or four part series on Jonah. And he brought stuff into that story that I'm like, it never once crossed my mind because it was never, it was always ever taught to us as a number one, a children's story, which it's a horrifying children's story. Yeah. Most of them are yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like genocide of the whole world. You why know? Is that, yeah. Why do we have pictures of animals, you know, who are apparently, you know, witnessing the deaths of humanity, um, just colorfully painted on our children's nurseries. But, but so that would be my first question to you. Like he, he would say, and then he did come back and say this again when he wrote uh, his book, um, What is the Bible? Was essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, but he would say essentially, if the most important thing to you about the story of Jonah is whether or not he got literally swallowed by a literal fish, then I'm already bored. Like I'm already, there's, that, that's the least interesting, it's the most maybe fantastical part, but it's the least interesting part of that story and he goes into all of, there's all kinds of stuff in there about the psychology of Jonah and what is his issue and why, why what, about enemy love and about uh, forgiveness and this, this thirst for retribution and retaliation that God seems to be mediating somehow. Way more interesting, right? So as you approach a story like that, what, what's your approach to, to kind of plumb the depths of that? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, at first... Like for me, it was like this relief about like, oh, I don't have to do this cognitive dissonance thing. Where oh I like, God, right? Yeah, where I'm like, you know, I have to try to imagine like in what possible scenario a man could like survive in the belly of a whale for three days. You know what I mean? And if I can't like come to like a rational belief that that could happen, then I just kind of have to like 
scapegoat it to like, well, God's so powerful. He could do anything kind of thing. It's like that for me at least, and I'm not like trying to like project this on anyone else, but I was like, that feels completely ludicrous. Like that's totally gone for me. And like you said, like when, when that's what like we're arguing about, I get totally bored with it because what I ended up discovering about like, um, mythology, and this is like a, a universal thing is for instance, um, universally in, in myths all over the world, in different religions and different cultures, the unconscious mind is, re- is represented by water. And so, you know, in the story of Jonah and the whale, you see uh, Jonah's like resistance to the water, you know, he's, um, he's above it. And then the, the beast or the whale underneath the water is kind of like this, um, the symbol of the energy of the unconscious that eventually like swallows him. And so it's like this descent into the unconscious and sort of why this like clicked for me is like, this What is what was happening to me. Like in my own process, I kind of saw the parallels as I was like experiencing this in real time. So after I kind of had the nervous breakdown, it was like months of therapy where it was, um, it was kind of going beyond like talk therapy and really like getting into like analysis of what was happening unconsciously for me that was affecting my life. Okay. So as I started to like delve into my own, like (laughs) own belly of the whale or whatever, it's, it's basically, um, kind of the symbolism in that picture is being swallowed by the unconscious and then kind of learning to tame that energy so that it's not, uh, creating all this neurosis in your like outside life. So we see that with Jonah, it's like with him avoiding what's underneath the water for him to deal with. There's like this shit storm happening, you know? And so, and so I could see that in my own life, like, Oh, there's, there's this drama and these same kind of things that are getting whipped up in my life all the time. And Anyways, it wasn't until I went like and explored what was happening underneath the surface that like I was able to bring like some peace and equanimity to myself, which either like calmed some situations or just gave me the awareness to be like, I don't want to be a part of that anymore. You know, I'm going to like step away. So anyways, so we have like this going back to the story, you know, we have this picture of the old man being swallowed. And then it's like, what happens in the belly? That's where things get broken down and digested. And that old energy is like literally like metabolized and used to create something new. And so then Jonah is like spit back out, back onto the surface, which, you know, is a symbolic of like re-entering the ordinary world. And so you've basically like tamed the beast captured its power and now you're able to like use that energy and like bring it forth into your life. So that was kind of the wisdom of that story for me. And when I saw it there, I could just not like unsee this in in all the Bible stories. I'm like, I think this is basically what it's about, you know? Well there's so there's so much about that story that it, it's weird to me because, you know, I you mentioned sort of the binary of biblical literalism, right? Which as evangelicals, uh, uh, we were certainly 
that was that was the model that was that was given to us was this is you know it's either it's either literally all true or it's or it, or none of it can be trusted and so but i always you know but there are certain stories that to me sound like either mythology and i don't mean that in the pejorative right that's the one thing that i that, that that'll get you into trouble with evangelicals um because they all they automatically assume that mythology means lie right um, and you know, i talk about that in the book that's actually been a tricky part about like like doing podcasts and just kind of speaking openly about it because like I didn't even put that word on the cover or the back of the book because it's so triggering. It's trick, yeah, it does. It, and it actually, I, I talk about in, in my book that, that I, I actually got in trouble at a church I was on staff at because I, I quoted C.S. Lewis Mm-hmm. Who spoke of the Bible in a letter to uh, I forget the I have it cited in the book, but um, essentially talking about the Bible being the Word of God, and 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 it, he's, he makes a reference in that quote to discerning between what we see in the Bible as either mythology or something else, and and then he caveats that very quickly with not to be you know not to not to be confused with other mythologies, but a certain mythology chosen by God to convey some truths, and I'm like. And even that wasn't enough to get me off the hook with these folks. They were mad that I had ever used the word mythology in association with the Bible at all. But all of that being said, so fine. I, 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 okay, don't call it mythology, call it a parable. And, and to me, the story of Jonah, and I, I don't want to fix it on just one story, but the story of Jonah seems very much like a parable to me in that it's, 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 it's devoid of a ton of detail, which parables tend to be. It's really not a very long story. And for one of the things that, that, that Rob Bell pointed out in his sermon um, that I, it has stuck with me forever was like, he's like, you know, prophets usually couldn't be shut up. Mm-hmm. And when Jonah goes to give his prophecy to the people of Nineveh, he says like six words and then he leaves. <laughs> it's like, this, is the, this is the least verbose prophet in humanity, you know, in, in human history. But, um, and then I also, and then there's a lot of times when parables leave unresolved, right? The parable of the, of the, uh, of the prodigal son does not resolve at the end. We don't know. Does the older brother come into the party? Does he ever, he just, it just leaves. And the, and the story of Jonah ends, I think to, in, to me in similar fashion, you know, yeah. he just sort he's of, he's like he, pouting under a tree. Yeah, he's just and, dejected yeah. and borderline suicidal. And he's like, is that, is that part of the, part of the, I guess part of the uh, impetus for the book or part of the reason for it to, to maybe pull us away from those binaries give us an opportunity to look at the biblical text in a, in a way that does not require us to go, you know, do, calculate the physics of whale digestion yeah. and figure out if that's possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that I can, I can really look back and say, like, I, I felt like certain, like, it, it wasn't that I wasn't taking the Bible seriously. Like, I felt like these mandates from God in, in my life. Like, it's like, I have to do certain things. You know, it wasn't it wasn't even just like, I have to like, play by the rules and, you know, not sin or whatever. It was like, I would feel like God told me to do something and then I like had to do it, you know? So it was like, I was taking it all like that seriously, but I can look back now and and just be like, most of these stories like did nothing for me. Like they weren't in my awareness. I wasn't thinking about these characters very much. You know what I mean? Until, until I started to see them as like, like maps for my own psychological development. And all of, and all of a sudden it was like, when I realized like, Oh, the belly 
is this metaphor, something that we call hell. Like I even went back and like started reading the stories and it says like Jonah, it says out of the belly of hell, I cried. And so he's saying I'm in hell. And then we see in Psalm 139, it's like, I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. And then we see Jesus saying like, you know, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, like the son of man will be in the heart of the earth for three days. You're going to see the sign of Jonah. It's, it's like all these things are pointing like to the same pattern. And so once I saw that and I was able to like accurately put myself on the map, suddenly was like, oh, I know my location now, you know, like this isn't an emergency anymore. This is something I'm like, I'm awake. I feel alive now. I feel like I'm on the adventure for the first time. And I actually have like these maps that are giving me like the courage to, yeah, like to like walk the journey. I mean, even like in writing this book and like speaking openly like this, I'm like, this could get me like people might not react very well to this. You know what I mean? Let me and like, ass- let me assuage your fears on that. Um, they, they absolutely will not uh, react well. Um, so, I, I guess well, I, didn't, well, I didn't assuage, but confirm your fears. Yeah. Um, well, fears well, and what's funny though is I was like, you know, I've re- I've resonated with the Jonah thing, and and it's just like I didn't go looking for that. Like I didn't go looking for this book. I didn't like sit around thinking about it. It was like, it inserted itself into my awareness. And all of a sudden I was like, I have this message, I guess, like that I'm supposed to go... And it's like, even as I was avoiding writing this book, and I really did, like, I was like, what do I do with this wisdom or illumination that I have? And it was like, maybe I'll try this. And like, you know, maybe I'll try to go back to school and like become a therapist or something like this. And like these doors just kept slamming shut, like so hard. It was like reverberating, you know, like, no, you're not doing that. And like, I basically just found myself with like, like the only thing left to do here is to write this book. So anyways, it was like my universe was not going to settle until this came out of me. And then once it came out, it was like, okay, I have the book. Now I have to go try to market this book. I don't really want to do that. Like none of this is is anything that I want to do, you know? And so literally like I've kind of had to go like, okay, well in the story, Jonah goes to Nineveh and then they're kind of just receptive and they're like, sounds good, you know? And he's like, okay, great. And so that's kind of like, Uh, it could be naive and it could turn out to be all wrong, but I was like, maybe people will just be like, yeah, it makes sense. You know? (laughs) That was (laughs) one of the things that, you know, I keep going back to Rob. And so I'm doing this for Rob's benefit because I know he listens and someday he'll come on the show, Rob. No, but that was one of the things that was so, so the, the best part of that story for him was the fact that Jonah in his reluctance to see those people come to repeat and want them to repent, he was hoping, he was praying that God would not. So he's already mad that God's too patient. He's too gracious. He's too whatever. He spits out this little bullshit prophecy, you know, repent or else, peace out, drops the mic and leaves. And then they're all like, ah, you know what? He's right. Yeah. Well, I guess we should repent. <laughs> and they all go, ah, we're sorry. Um, 
But but the interesting thing that you brought up, a couple things. Number one, to me, the parallel is interesting that you didn't want to write the book, but the book kind of hijacked you and began to digest you until it spat you out in a book. So there you go. You are Jonah. I think that's an interesting parallel. But the other thing that you mentioned, that, I, and then I'm going to let John get a word in edgewise, because sometimes I do this, but when we take these stories and we flatten them out and we literalize them, right? And we end up with a Ken Ham or somebody out there building the next theme park, which will be a giant well you can pass through his intestinal tract and he can prove to you that somehow this is all possible while he's distracted from the fucking point. There, what is your takeaway from a story like that when it's just been reduced to its most absurd parts and just becomes a story of God wiping out people in a flood? The, the lesson from Noah then is don't be bad. Thanks. Awesome story. Appreciate that. Uh, what is the story from Jonah? Obey God or you'll, you know, you'll get swallowed up by fish. All of these stories become less than unhelpful. They, they actually present, and then they do the damage of presenting an image of a God who is both capricious, mercurial, and violent, right? You have all these things that are, that are happening. My wife is calling in the middle of all this. Baby, I'm on the podcast. So in your experience then, does this help you kind of get into something that, that rescues these stories? from just being little footnotes, like, okay, well, blah, 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 Jonah, Jonah, you know, if it actually brings them back to have some kind of relevance. Yes, absolutely. I'm really like, I kind of mentioned before, it, it almost felt like if, if you like spoke English your whole life and then suddenly, I don't know, I'm not exactly sure how to like make this a parallel, but just decided, you know, like English had been, you know, a tool for oppression or whatever. You had all these problems with it. And then you decided like, I can't speak English anymore. I have to go learn a new language. And so to me, it was like, it was just looking at things like this. These are just languages and it feels really difficult for me. Even as I was like exploring other traditions and finding all the parallels, I just like, I value communication so much. It was just like all these all the metaphors were just already baked into me, you know? So I'm like, why would I leave my mother tongue and go try to learn a completely new language? I do go explore the other traditions and like weave some of that in because it helps me like understand the mystery better. But just kind of understanding like, like language is not the thing. Like language is meant to take us through itself into like the experience of like the mystery and the eternal and like, you know, the, the now, like the experience of the now. And so like language is just a portal. And so I kind of see like religions that way. It's like, you know, these are, these are different languages with different symbols and metaphors that are their purposes to like take us through them. You know, like when I travel, like through the, excuse me, through the tradition of Christianity, like I don't come out the other end, like just thinking about Christianity. Like I have like this collision with like the eternal mystery of all of it, you know, but then I can use it. So anyways, basically like as, as I was deconstructing, I, I kind of just noticed how everyone sort of felt like they had to abandon their mother tongue. And I'm like, you have a, we have a treasure trove of language right here. You know what I mean? And, and then understanding it as language and mythology, it kind of like, 
sort of quickly healed all the triggering things I felt about it. Because like you said, it was like when, when the argument is just like, is this literal or is this not? Or is like God, this angry Zeus man in the sky, or does he not exist or whatever? It's like when all those kind of like flattened images, when I came to a better explanation of them, all of a sudden it was like, I was like learning this for the new for the first time. So I just kind of stopped thinking about all the other stuff, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. What Nat was saying, and you've also commented on, is this this flat reading of the Bible becomes problematic. Because Mm -hmm. um, for me, and I'm assuming for you as well, you get stuck at like, say, just the story of creation, right? Um, So there's so many questions that come up. And for me, this was years Decades ago, these questions came up as, you know, you hear the story of creation, you know, dinosaurs don't fit into that story, right? Because they don't Mm -hmm. exist within the Bible. So that creates questions. You ask these questions. And so, of course, then when you ask questions, you become a problem uh, because um, you're, you're stepping outside the norm of specifically Sunday school, right? Which is supposed to be child friendly and you don't ask a lot of questions. You just you just listen to this story, which is, for all intents and purposes, is a young Earth version of 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 our of our history, which doesn't answer a shit ton of questions about how this planet exists, how the cosmos exists, how the universe exists, all of that, right? And so you you start to question that, which then steps into these other questions about the virgin birth. Which asks you know questions about if we want to go back in the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea, the Great Flood, um, all of that, right? Uh, the Tower of Babel. You know, what does that really mean? What's and it takes away the nuance of the story and creates this flat reading of a historical moment, which may or may not have happened at all. But if you can look at it from like a, a ten thousand foot view of a story explaining a connection of God to a people who don't understand God. You get a much richer version than just, you know, Joseph was a real person. Adam and Eve were real people. Moses was a real person. Abraham was a real person. Does that, does any of that really matter if you don't get the point of the story? Yeah. Well, and I think if, I think if you don't get the point of the story, and your faith is anchored into is this real or not then it like it matters so much because for it to not be real just pulls the jenga block out of the bottom of the tower right and it's like i can i can remember you know before all this i would like come across a news story or something that would i don't know it'd be like something or ever like disproves something about Jesus. And like, I just remember I could just not, I could not take it into my awareness. I just, it was like this universe where I couldn't be sure or trust anything really. Like I kind of just felt like science doesn't really know, like none of these experts really know it because everything had to come like to this fixed point of very literal truth. And it had to be this certain way. I just couldn't take any other information into my universe because it was too disruptive, like internally. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I don't, I wasn't yeah. even aware that that is what I was doing. And so like another part of all this 
for me is kind of, and because of my own experience, like, and I'll just use like my husband as an example. He's, he's just a very different personality where like he, he has been able to like progress very like rationally and like think through these things. If he changes his mind about something, it's not like this earth shattering thing, you know? Whereas for me, my experience of really like having to having my own personal experience of what I would call hell, having that and realizing like how terrifying that was for me. And that's basically like what it took to open my eyes to seeing anything a different way. It's like that whole experience, like I wouldn't wish it on anybody really. And so I can totally understand how before go, it's like, why would I ever choose to like go there in my yeah, head, yeah, you know? Yeah. So for me, it became this thing of like this process of human development, really, where like my process wasn't like, oh, someone pointed out some great contradiction in the Bible. And that really got me thinking like none of the contradictions were allowed to come in to my carefully constructed universe. Like it's just, there's like a castle wall and that's out, you know, like I sort of selectively let penetrate what I wanted to. And if something was too disruptive, it was out. So anyways, I, I've, I've begun to just be able to see this as like, this is human development. And what, what were the conditions that it took for me to feel like safe enough to like evolve beyond where I was. Well, and I think Nat, Nat would agree with this and probably a lot of our uh, guests on the show would agree with this. For the most part, what how I connect with deconstruction is very few people have actively decided to deconstruct their faith. It is something that has happened to them that made them go, oh, okay, uh, something, something internal made you or me or Nat or whoever question something. And then we pulled on that thread, right? We started pulling on that thread. And by pulling on that thread, the whole sweater fell apart. And so for me, you know, and Nat and I have talked about this on our podcast a few times. So for me, this happened so many years ago. There wasn't this, there wasn't this word of deconstruction. I left the church in disgust because I didn't understand how they marginalized and kept people out and weren't willing to ask for people to ask honest, you know, heartfelt questions. So this was me decades ago. But as I re-entered the faith, some of the questions that came up for me, again, started questioning where I fit within this faith. And the question or the, the, the response I got from most people as I tried to reenter the community of, of the church or whatever you want to call it was, well, yeah, I understand you're deconstructing, but you're not going to deconstruct Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. And for the, for the first part of that, I'd say, well, yeah, no, I don't think so because, I mean, why would I? And then I got to the point where I was like, no, I, I actually have to. And so that was, that was the scary part for me. Deciding if the virgin birth was real was not, that wasn't problematic for me. Deciding if the flood was a real thing was not problematic because I had left these things behind so long ago. But deciding if Jesus was the son of God or not, did he resurrect or not? Was he born of a virgin birth or not? Was scary as hell. And I finally came to the point where I was like, I have to deconstruct 
Jesus too. And I have to get to the point where I, would I follow this man even if all of this wasn't true? Mm-hmm. And I got I to the point that. where I, I could say, tell a story. Well, no, I was just going to say, and I got to the point where I was like, yeah, I can, because what he taught was so universally accepted as a loving idea towards all humanity that I don't, I no longer care if, and this is going to sound even more heretical. I don't, I no longer care if he's even the son of God. Heretic. Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> sometimes, I have, sometimes I have heresy Tourette's and I just have things started. But what, <laughs> What this man Jesus taught us to, how to treat humanity is enough for me, and that was that was the scary one for me. Yeah, the same thing in the book where I um I was having sort of um there was another uh, girl in the church um who had been a worship leader and like as I was starting to kind of wake up, there were certain people that you kind of get like a feeling like oh maybe this person is on a similar path or whatever. And so we're like kind of having this like, not secret, but just like kind of coming out to one another. Like, are you thinking that, you know what I mean? Like kind of (laughs) seeing how far the ideas would go. And I remember um, like, and I write like at the end of the meal, like I like work up the guts. It was really like, okay, I'm going to have to like get a lot of nerve to ask her, like, do you think that Jesus literally rose from the dead? You know, like this is like, the line in the sand question or something right, like how yeah. far are we going to go with this and she just goes like does it matter right and i don't know why but that was such like a mind blowing response it was the perfect response and it was like no i don't have to spend any more energy like analyzing this because the like I talk about in this book, like myth is Joseph Campbell. Um, I don't, I don't know if y'all are familiar with who he is, but yes. he yeah, yeah really like brought mythology to like pop culture and kind of popularized it. Like starting in the eighties, he's like, myth is like the penultimate truth. Like it's like, as far as you can go right before you get to the truth, like it like releases you into it. And that is like Jesus's life is like a living myth, like everything, even the symbolism of the cross. Like if you stare at that long enough, it's like you have this horizontal and vertical plane that are intersecting, like everything on the physical earthly plane, like intersects with this spiritual dimension. And that is like, it's like the anatomy of the universe, like is kind of summed up in that symbol. And then you have like this man like suffering on this cross. And it's like the portal, the key to like life is to like let your suffering transform you somehow. You know, it's like, it's like this affirmation that like this suffering is a part of reality and like, you know, kind of putting aside this, I think we can all agree, like we have like some unnecessary suffering that we have, like injustices and all this, but even like all that aside, just life itself, like the Buddha said, like is suffering, like you can't escape it, you know? So even if it's like, maybe I haven't, and this was a huge thing in Christianity. It was like, you know, Jesus suffered more than anybody. So therefore like, 
I don't need to complain about mine. It was, it was kind of this thing. And what ends up happening is like, no one can like really look at their suffering squarely and take it into themselves and like actually let the energy of that, like transform them into something higher. And anyway, so we just like, we see sort of the key to like, life and transformation and like what to do with your suffering summed up in this picture of like this bleeding man on the cross and like just the archetype of that was so it is like so such a profound truth for my life and my experiences that I'm like that's more real to me than like a literal event you know what I mean well so, and then and that, so in the way that you're describing it, then the reality of that is way more important than the literalness of that, right? Yes. Right. And so as you're talking through that, I'm thinking about how this image of Christ upon the cross has captured the imagination of people for all the, I mean, Dolly has, you know, painted these amazing, these, these paintings and um, it's captivating. And then we, when we reduce all of that down to a formula that says God died on the cross because you were bad and and we we take all of that beauty out of it, right? Everything you talked about with the with the geometry of the cross, even and the you know the thing, I, all of that stuff that 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 resonates and sort of steers us towards you know these larger truths gets reduced into a tit for tat retaliatory event by God, so that He could beat the hell out of somebody unjustly, so that we wouldn't have to. That was supposed to, by the way, uh, comfort me as a kid. You're right. <laughs> Listen, you were really bad, and Jesus really had every right to, to 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 send you into the fiery pits forever. But God punished him instead. First of all, instead, God has to beat up your brother John over here. Right, right. And you got to whoop John so that you can be off. The and hook. what's really funny is there were times when John and I were kids, and and this is why this is why some of this stuff has, you know, even on just a fundamental, you know, I don't know, just just the just the simple basic bullshit test, these things don't pass, right? I remember being kids and John and I were accused of something or my parents had asked us if we'd done something. And, and uh, I remember, you know, there's at least a handful of times when John was going to get punished for something I did. And even in my eight or nine or 10 year old body or seven year old, whatever it was, I knew that was unjust, you know, and that would normally compel me to confess if I needed to confess. Although there were times I let him get his ass kicked, but <laughs> he had a, in the grander scheme of things, he had that coming. But that's the that's one of the driving narratives of of the version of evangelicalism that I brought up on is that I get to skate because God unjustly punished somebody rather than everything that you just said, mm -hmm. which is this. But it ends up being the exact opposite. And I hit on this in the book where we treat Jesus like like he did it. So I don't have to. He suffered. And so now I'm off the hook. And and the truth is, is it's no, follow me, like get up from the foot of the cross and get on your cross and turn around and figure out like each, like each person has to discuss like, what is my cross to bear in life? And I kind of play around with this idea of like, if I'm trying to follow Jesus, something that we see about him is like this consent to his incarnation. Like we kind of have this idea that he sees how this whole, how his whole life is going to play out before he agrees to come. And then it's like this big 
sacrifice to even come here and like, you know, go through the whole thing to his death and everything. And I'm like, if I take following Jesus, like to the extreme, like I, I, when I would start to be like in these, it it, it might've been like some real victimization that I experienced or some real suffering. But like when I would start to wallow in this, like, this isn't fair or I shouldn't complain about it or, you know, whatever. It was like, I had this mindset of like, what if I agreed to this before I got here in the same way that Jesus, like, it's like, whether it's real or not, this idea helps me take responsibility for my life and go like, what if I just wanted to learn like the ultimate lesson about like compassion and forgiveness. How do, how does this situation or like this injustice, like how, how does this open my heart like to greater compassion and forgiveness? And so like that idea of taking like full responsibility, like for my life and kind of looking at every situation as like this opportunity for me to like open up more and more and more like to compassion, then it was like, it's, it becomes less about Jesus suffered so much so that we don't have to, or we don't need to complain about ours. And like, how do I use this suffering that I do have in my life as like grist for the mill of awakening? Like, how does this wake me up? You know? Yeah. And rather than, uh, you know, that, that that tendency we have towards avoidance of all of that, right? Mm-hmm. Which is sort of part and parcel of being 21st century Western evangelicals, you know, living in America. We do have this, we have this avoidance. And then sort of on the parallel, like on the, on the polar opposite side of that, maybe some traditions who, who, who seem to seek out suffering so that they can prove their devotion to God. Somewhere in the middle lies the reality that, you know, I think, uh, I think it was the, uh, what was the guy's name from the Princess Bride? Wesley, I think it was Wesley who said it best. He said, "Life is pain," you know, which I'm sure is a paraphrase of the Buddha. Life is pain, you know. And as he finished on, he said, "Anyone who tells anyone who tells you differently is selling you something." So, I like the question that you asked and that you posed and all this. Okay, what is there in this for me? And like you said, we're not. This is not to negate unjust suffering or un you know, inordinate amount. There are people in this life who suffer inordinately. There are people whose lives are are unnecessarily difficult. Um, and that's not the kind of suffering that we're talking about, right? In those places where we can step in, we should step in. Um, but just in the normal day-to-day, life is pain. There's there's no way around it. The, the lessons of the evangelical church for me um, stopped working in assuaging any of that or, or, or ameliorating any of that. It never did fix it. It just did what you, what you just mentioned, which was, well, there's nothing compared to Jesus is suffering. You're okay. And it just minimized, it minimized it. So somewhere in the middle there, I think is this, is this healthy place of understanding that we, we can't avoid it. It's part of being human. The question is, I guess, like you said, what do we do with it? Right. And I think the Bible stories, um, if they serve us at all, and I think they do, I think they serve us in that way. What does Job learn from his story of unjust, inordinate suffering, by the way, <laughs> and being cast as a villain in his own story when he was, he did, all he did was, you know, have the temerity to get involved in a pissing contest between God and the devil. Okay, if we can get beyond that part of it, there's something in there for me, right? I hope. Uh, otherwise, what's the, what's the point of it all? Yeah, there's... Um... 
you're talking about my book, but I'm going to like recommend another book real quick. <sighs> I've been reading okay. um, this book called um, I think Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Do y'all know who he is? I'm aware of Viktor Frankl. I don't, I don't think I've read okay. that book. Yeah. Okay. Well, basically, so he was, he's a Holocaust survivor and was in maybe like several different camps, um, including Auschwitz. Um, but he, and he was a psychologist. And so, you know, he's like living out this experience, but also kind of observing like the psychology of people who were in the camp. And he has this idea um, of becoming worthy of your suffering. And he kind of, you know, has this like profound statement in the book where he's like, you know, the human being is capable of building the gas chambers and is also capable of like walking into them with the Lord's prayer on his lips. And he was like, kind of talking about how he saw the worst of how humans can like devolve into like these animalistic behaviors under the pressure of suffering. And then also how he saw, you know, some people, as he would say, like become worthy of their suffering, and like just become these spiritual giants where it was like all, all of it, all of reality was kind of yielded to. And even in the midst of all of that, like being able to like feel saturated in like beauty and peace, you know, even in the midst of like just unthinkable suffering. And, and I feel like that that is kind of, or it is like what Jesus represents is it's like, you know, this picture of all these people, if you want to say like the whole world, like projecting all their pain into him, like as the scapegoat, right? Like this is too much. We can't deal with this. Like our nervous systems have to expel this from our body. So we're literally like throwing it up at you on the cross. And in Jesus, it's like, this is the end of the line for this pain. And like, this is going to be recycled into something else. It's not like, I think that the whole like canceled the debt thing is like just such an inadequate way to say that because it's like, it doesn't just go away. Like he literally like recycles it into something higher and like puts it back out as this love, you know, he's like taking that energy and putting it back out as something different. And then it's like, when you project your pain into someone and then they turn it around and like bestow like beauty and goodness and love on you, like that is something that will like shatter your defenses, you know? That, that it's, it's really, I don't know if you've ever read any, uh, any of Brian Zahn's work. Um, yeah. Okay, so Brian, that's a very... It reminds me of something, the way that he would say that is that, you know, we sort of, we send our sins into Christ. Yes. And yes. Christ's response is not one of retaliation. It's not one of, it's not reciprocal. It's not, you know, okay, you did this and therefore, um, he exactly says that he, 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 you know, he breathes that in and he exhales forgiveness. He hex, you know, it gets recycled into this thing. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Girard or mimetic theory, but you mentioned scapegoating. So that's a, yeah. that's a very Girardian thing. And so um, yeah. the interesting thing that uh, Girard would say about Christ is that he's the, he's a failed scapegoat. Mm. Because, say more about that. Well, because scapegoats are supposed to die. Yeah. And okay. so yes. in, in the resurrection, and again, we can, we could, and all of us could discuss ad, ad nauseum whether or not that's a literal 
resurrection. I, I'll fall on the side of yes, I'm fine with that. But the resurrection then is the repudiation of everything that had been done to Christ as a scapegoat. And he becomes the end of scapegoating in, you know, at least in, in, in the macro sense. Obviously, we still scapegoat every single day. But as far as the, the, the long-term um, ramifications of that are Christ, Christ shows us a way out of that milieu if nothing else, right? That we don't have to continue down this road. And there is this, there is at least an exemplar of how to not scapegoat people and, and, and then, and then also how to not be retaliatory and, and not, and not, um, just continue the cycle of violence. And so, yeah. That, and I think the important thing about what you're saying is like, he shows us how. And that's the thing yeah. is it's like the point of all this is not for him to go do something that I don't have to do. Right. It's, it's to like, show me how, right? Yes, which then immediately it's like, oh shit, like this just became way more demanding. And that was the thing that used to crack me up, you know, and for a long time I parroted this, this stuff, right? I parroted this, this paradigm of evangelical Christianity, which is, which is really easy. It really is. It was like, and they would always tell me, this isn't, this isn't hard because for them, all of it revolved around believing the right things. As long as I could assent to the correct things and that, in that case, correctness became way more important than anything else, right? I need to do at least parrot the right beliefs. I need to think the right things about God. Whether or not I ever put any of those things into practice was actually secondary or maybe tertiary. It didn't matter really at all. I could be a really shitty human being and still be a really good evangelical Christian. And I think that's one of those, one of those little detours that the grace movement took us down that was, un, that was, that was unfortunate, was, was taking the focus off of behavior as a central driving force but the but the but the pendulum swings the other side where the things you do don't really matter at all. Well, it, and the the sad part within that is so on both sides. So on both sides of this pendulum, so you have the side where Jesus did it all, and so if you ever had the audacity to say that your life wasn't good, you would get well. You know, in comparison to what Jesus suffered for you, your life is pretty damn good. So you had to better toe the line and get in line and start responding when people ask you how you're doing. Your response better be, I'm, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm okay. Right. I'm highly blessed. I'm highly favored. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. Yes. So the pendulum. So with the grace movement, the pendulum swings all the way to the other side that now, how dare you ever have a bad day? Because Jesus did all of this so. We are now saints. We are, the, we are. How could you complain about this when the alternative was you should have died on a cross? Right. So even on both sides of this pendulum, on the evangel- evangelical side or the grace side, the end result was you live this blessed sainthood life. And why are you complaining? The, the other weird result of that, John, and maybe you can speak on this, Heather, is Jesus gets marginalized in both of those. Jesus is no longer primary. I remember, I remember reading uh, a book by a guy who's, I don't remember, it might have been Andrew Farley or somebody. And, and his, the thrust of his entire argument was really, okay, Jesus is cool, um, but really you should pay more attention to Paul. And so even, you know, so you couldn't, you know, he was admonishing people not to even say the Lord's Prayer, because that really wasn't meant for us. We're, uh, we're Christians and he was speaking to a Jewish audience. And so therefore, blah, blah, blah. So in both of these instances, I think that te- the admonitions of Jesus to follow him to take up our cross, to do the things he did, they're both pushed to the side 
as we either assent to just being totally bathed in grace, therefore nothing matters, or um, I believe the right things and I assent to the right things, so therefore nothing matters. It, it's sort of two sides of the sort of nihilistic coin where, you know, to, you know, to quote Metallica, nothing really matters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I brought interesting... a full circle with Metallica. Go ahead. There yeah. you go. What was interesting that I, I kind of just remembered as both of y'all were talking was one, and I, and I mentioned this as well in the book, like how it seems so easy. Like it's just so easy, this little formula, you know, like you did the bad things, you know, but God sent Jesus to pay it all. And like, you just have to believe this and accept this. Like, boom, that's, that's all that grace requires of you, that's you it. know, like that's it. And, and it was like, it's so simple. But as a child, it then became this obsessive thing about like, how sincere am I about mm, this? Oh my gosh, yes. Where I would play this over and over again, like, and I would, you know, say just one more prayer, like before going to bed, just in case, like, how could I measure the sincerity of my heart, you know? And so it really became this obsessive thing, which in addition to that, you know, it, once I kind of eventually got past that, which I was probably, and this was like years, like as a child, through being a teenager, like in youth group, it was like, oh, I got to rededicate my life, you know, kind of thing. Like I got to be, I don't know how many times I got saved, but it was a lot. But so when I kind of finally started moving past that, then it became about like earning my crowns in heaven. Where it's like, Amen. okay, I'm in. That was the grace part. But now comes in the works part, you know, where it was like, okay, I can't do anything to earn it. I can't do anything to earn my ticket in. But now I can like build my status or my favor with God or something like this. And so it was almost this double whammy where like, I know a lot of my friends who are Catholic, you know, their focus is more like kind of on the works. Like you got to do all this stuff to be right with God. And the Protestants would kind of pride themselves on like, it's all grace. You don't have to do any of that. I'm like, it's kind of this both thing where I'm like having OCD about the sincerity of my heart, you know, because that's a requirement to get the grace. And then after that, I'm still working my butt off, you know, and like forcing myself to like stay committed to things out of like this fear that I wasn't going to have like the status I would want with God or something like this. I, I so, am. That's exactly my experience, by the way. That's really yeah. strange. Cause, and, and I don't know, I don't know that I've ever voiced it like that. Uh, but as soon as you said that, I used to, I used to, uh, man, I used to, I used to try really hard and I didn't even know, I didn't even know what that should look like for me to sincerely believe the things I would, you know what I mean? It was like, okay, what, what is, what, how does that even, so, you know, at some point in my life, I made a connection between tears and sincerity. And so I would just try to find a way at whatever service I was getting saved in to make sure I was crying a lot. You know, I was like, oh, and all of a sudden I'm like, well, you really meant it because you felt it because you cried. <laughs> Because um, you're emotionally exhausted. Yeah, which had to be, I'm, I'm sure there's a psychological rabbit trail to run down there to see how that screwed me up later in life. But as a, but it served me well as a worship leader because then I knew um, beyond a shadow of doubt, I know how to manipulate people with music, you know? And it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing to, and to maybe it manipulates too harsh of a word, um, but you can certainly maneuver people, right? Yeah. Well, and I don't think that you're consciously aware. Because, like, like I said, my husband is a musician, like the whole worship thing. Music and just it just moves you, man. It's Yes, it just moves you. Yeah. But to your point, when I was coming out of this and kind of just realizing how much 
of my spiritual experience was like these external things, you know what I mean? Like in the emotional, like pulls and all of that. And me feeling like I didn't have autonomy or agency. Like I just felt very pulled around by like the external environment. I had to do like a detox from music, you know, it's like my husband was still like playing in churches and stuff. And it's like, I like, it was like years of silence or maybe like classical music or something, which I had never listened to, but just, it, it was like this whole recalibration of my nervous system of just like being still and realizing like how uncomfortable that was at first and how boring it could be. Like, I just remember being like kind of disturbed by how bored I was all of a sudden, (laughs) you know, and like kind of reacquainting myself and like kind of finding a new harmony with just like nature and solitude and stillness and like reestablishing that as the baseline um, and then once I kind of got through the boredom, it it opened up into like, oh, this is like, you got to get this quiet to like hear the beauty of the mystery. You know what I mean? And and then you got to kind of stay there for a while to like acclimate your body to like resonating with that frequency of things. Yeah. When I so I left the most recent church that I was on. I, I really can't say on staff, but I was, you know, I worked there and I was the worship pastor and I was the associate pastor. So, you know, I did music every Sunday. I, I led mm-hmm. worship. Uh, when I walked away from that church, I stopped listening to music, period, for two years. I'm only recently listening to music again. I could not stomach the idea of music at all. Music to me became the most manipulative way to control a human's brain because and I think Nat can Nat can speak on this as well uh, the most the most rewarding and sadly and I, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say it the most rewarding moment within a worship service was seeing someone crying because you knew that you touched something within them but it wasn't was it even real or was it just me manipulating because I put the right songs in the right order and said the right things between songs. And so for a long time, I couldn't even listen to music. And so what the funny part is, so now I listen to like, so, like the opposite of that, right? I listen to really like loud, hardcore, enraged music to just kind of, kind of come at it from a different point of view. I, I mean, it's not all I listen to, but there is a lot of that, you know, uh, you know, Loud protest music is what I was, what I find very, um, easy to listen to now because it's so the opposite of the worship, you know, the worship model of, of music. And, uh, it's, but like I said, it's only been recently that I could even stomach the idea of listening to music, period. I mean, it was two years of audiobooks and podcasts because I couldn't, I couldn't listen to music at all. Yeah. Well, and I think that that like what you're kind of speaking or what we're all kind of speaking to is like just this, this missing piece of like the importance of like knowing thyself. I have a quote in the book that's like from the temple of Apollo at Delphi, like know thyself and thou shall know God in the universe. And it's like, like we're saying, like music is just, 
it, it's, it's amoral. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, there's no value judgment on it, but it's being able to be like attuned to ourselves, you know? And like, like you were saying, like, and for me knowing this isn't healthy for me right now, like this is feeding some kind of addiction or attachment that I have to ego or whatever. And so this has got to go until like I starve that. And then coming to a place of going like, you know what? I think that maybe I have to work through that. And now I'm like, kind of just pushing now the push off away from it is now becoming an ego thing where it's like, now I'm attached to being anti this, you know? And kind of, yeah, kind of like reintroducing some of the old things that I used to enjoy and going like, it there doesn't have to be like this dualistic thing. It's more like my orientation towards it. And that, that was really like the, probably the biggest part in evangelicalism that I just felt was missing was this, yeah, the, the agency to like really know and understand yourself. Um, I just felt like that the awareness of that was lacking, but, you know, kind of going back to like the, human development thing, I kind of feel like just the more and more I've observed, I kind of see this just like across the whole spectrum of humanity. So I don't know. Are y'all, have y'all, um, are you into Ram Dass at all? Are you familiar with him? I am not. No. Okay. Y'all are got like, I'm not, I'm not familiar. Yeah. Um, not that I'm not okay. into, I'm just not familiar. Okay. Yeah. Well, he's, um, he's, he's a spiritual teacher and his path was kind of like through psychedelics. That's how he kind of had it. He was like a Harvard professor, um, maybe in the sixties or seventies, um, who had like a real secular life and then kind of came to this like spiritual awakening through psychedelics or whatever. But he has just this profound understanding of like Christ and, you know, can kind of speak to some of this the way that we are. But I remember, um, and he actually ended up sort of like converting to Hinduism or like adopting that as his tradition. But he, I, he, I was listening to a lecture of his where he was telling the story about um, like there's like a path in Hinduism or yoga called like bhakti yoga. And it's like the path of like love and devotion. And he's like describing how like all these adherents would like sing and like have their hands in the air, like praising and worshiping like a Hindu God or whatever. And I was like, Oh my God. Like, it sounds exactly like evangelicalism. Like it, it was just, I was like, I'm pretty sure evangelicalism is like the same thing as bhakti yoga. We just have like a deity that's sort of assigned to us. It's Jesus. Whereas like in my understanding in bhakti yoga, you can kind of like pick which Hindu God you want to like give your love and devotion to, but then it's the same thing. So there's like this juxtaposition of like, it's like you worshiping the God until eventually like you like become like the two become one flesh kind of thing, which is essentially like the point of what Christianity is trying to do. But it just, I was like, it seems like they're all unaware of it and we're all unaware of it. And maybe (laughs) this is just like part of the human journey is feeling this separateness from God, you know? No, I think you're right. I think there'll be a, uh, there'll be a convergence at some point, you know, and we'll be like, oh, okay, I see. Uh, there, there, are, there are enough places of similarity in there 
that just makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, we've actually had another guest on who talked about, um, I can't, John, who has to maybe remember who it was who talked about his spiritual experiences with psychedelics. Um, uh, Kevin Sweeney. Yeah, Kevin Sweeney. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, he, yeah. so he, he has a quite a bit of his story starts out that way. And he's quick to say, well, I don't really do that anymore. But at one point, yeah. it was necessary to sort of unstick me from some places yes. where I just really had really become kind of um, ingrained in a few. Th- and so that really helped kind of to set me free from some stuff. So I think, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think, I know, I'm pretty sure psychedelics have gotten a pretty bad rap. But then again, we've, we've done the same kind of things, you know, towards all kinds of things like, you know, psychotherapy. And you know, it's like, uh, how dare you just not commit everything to the Lord in prayer? And, and just pray for the best. But I hate to be that guy, but we have a hard out here in a couple of minutes because we got another, we got, we got Mr. Uh, Mr. Peter Enns coming on here pretty soon, um, yes. which I'm very excited about. I'm glad about. I could like roll out the red carpet no, for I'm, Peter. I'm so glad that <laughs> they, no, I'm telling you, it, and actually a lot, of, I, I'm not sure how, how familiar you are with him, but you remind me of him. Um, the, oh, the, well, thanks. Well, yeah, the, the, this approach, because all of this starts with being comfortable with, with, with letting go of our certainties. And, 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 you know, that, that has a plumb line that goes, you know, all the way back to like Thomas Merton and then on to, to Richard Rohr and to others. And, and then obviously, um, even people like Marcus Borg, who write, you know, who, who teaches how to read the Bible more responsibly and not so binarily and literally. All of that helps us get rid of that need for, for certainty and concreteness and every single thing and, and lean into what is a much, much more vast and more beautiful world anyway. I, I, I don't know what you, how much of this has caused you, you know, um, some discomfort and some pain in your circles that you travel in. It's caused me quite a bit. Um, it's cost me financially. It's cost me relationships. It cost me all kinds of stuff. And I wouldn't go back for anything. So this is so much, so much more better, John. Or should I say so, so much, much more better, so much more betterer than um, so much than more betterer. Yes, yes, yes. I want to put as many superlatives on that as I possibly could. So <laughs> anyway, we'll 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 go ahead and take a take our take our leave. But before we go, I want to mention obviously uh, Heather's book Returning to Eden is available soon. Right? Has it been released yet? It comes out on the twenty second, okay, February twenty so, second. Okay, by the time I don't know when this. Yeah, by the time this comes out. Yeah, we usually try to coordinate. So we're, we're releasing right around your release date so that hey, we can go um, get our six or eight devout listeners to go buy a book. And then the, uh, <laughs> but, and then we'll, we'll obviously, we'll link to that in the show notes and um, any other social media stuff that you have going on. Yeah, returningtoeden.com is my website and you can get to my social media links there. Perfect. Yeah. That's what we want to do. We want to promote, promote, promote. Get out there and buy a bunch of books, man. I already saw, I actually looked your book up. It's like number one in, in new releases and it hasn't been released yet. It hit, yeah. Like I, I haven't been pushing pre-orders, but um, Addison Hodges Hart, who endorsed it, like shared his endorsement. And okay, then, wait a minute. Like, That's another guy we need to get a hold of. You do need to get a hold of him. And his brother, yeah. who, has yes. been, who has been dodging us. David Benley Hart. He also he just endorsed my book as well. So I'm like excited to share all of this, but I've been what? like saving it for launch date. I know. How do we, how like, do we not lead with that? David Bentley Hart is one of my favorite humans on the planet. I love okay, that dude. Well, so he says that you should go read my book, well, Returning. <laughs> yeah. And his brother agrees. And brothers almost and never Addison agree. Agrees. Yes. <laughs> I love Addison. Yeah. Addison's great, man. If you don't follow Addison on Facebook, you're missing out on some really cool stuff. Okay. Some great. I got to add this. It's just just like a weird little nerdy moment. Uh, David Bentley Hart and it's Addison, right? Addison? Yeah. I, Addison I look Hodges at them. Hart. 
Addison Hodges are. I look at them as if they are the two uh, Dumbledore brothers. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't now know he's why. Never coming on the show, John. Great. Just, <laughs> ah, shit. Now, David, well, David Bentley. David Bentley Hart is is Professor Professor Dumbledore, and then his brother is. His yeah, brother. okay. We're going to stop now. Well, yeah. <laughs> the last thing I'll say is when I sent him, when I sent David uh, Bentley Hart the book, the first email he responded was that I had a typo, which was like oh. just the perfect. <laughs> you know anything about him? I was like, that is the most David Bentley Hart thing that could have been said. Well, that's the best thing because I love the, I mean, Keith Giles loves that endorsement he got from. From David Bentley Hart, who all he, I mean, he starts out criticizing the title of the book for being yeah, bad. Yeah, this is horrible Latin. This is horrible yeah. Latin. But that, you know, <laughs> was, in fact, we were talking to uh, um, Douglas Campbell, and uh, I don't know how much you know about him, but um, very, 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 very well respected Pauline scholar in the sort of new school of Pauline theology. And um, he and N.T. Wright are somewhat adversarial. And um, because, you know, N.T. Wright's way more mainstream and um, anyway, but he had, he had gotten N.T. Wright's endorsement on this book he'd written, and it was the most backhanded endorsement I've ever read. It was so <laughs> passive-aggressive, but it was basically, you know, essentially he said, you know, while I disagree with almost all of his conclusions, um, you know, the academic work is, is impeccable. So basically just, you know... <laughs> And I and I asked Douglas about that. He's like, and I'm like, why'd you use that quote? He's like, well, he just loved it. He's like, yeah, it's, I mean, he was being honest. So it's like, at least he applauded something about it. So um, yes. that's great. I'm, yeah. I'm proud of you, man. That's amazing that you got both those guys on board. So yeah, that should that should uh, that should uh, uh, um, acquit you well with uh, with all of our fellow heretics because David Bentley Hart is probably our favorite heretic. We love that guy. So yes. Yes, I love him too. All righty. So thank you guys so much I, for man, having me. I've enjoyed me. this. Thank you so yes. much for hanging oh, out. Yeah. 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 Anytime. I'd love to do it again. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.